Welcome to the Oxygen Advantage podcast with your hosts, Oxygen Advantage founder Patrick McKeown and Daniel Paulson. With the Oxygen Advantage podcast, we aim to show how functional breathing is an essential part of a healthy and well-balanced lifestyle. Each episode, we meet experts in their field from around the world and talk about their lives, their experiences, and how they learned the importance of breathing. Join us and get inspired. Get the Oxygen Advantage. Shall I start off? How long, for example, has heart rate variability been recognized? Who are the researchers? Is it something that starts in the last 10, 20, 30 years, 40 years? Yeah, good question. So heart rate variability was first initially found actually in the field of cardiology. Uh, it wasn't termed heart rate variability back in the day. Uh, there are multiple stories as to who coined the term heart rate variability. For instance, an individual, Dr. Stephen Porges, very well known for polyvagal theory, was the first one to indicate that he coined the term heart rate variability. What's really interesting in our small circles of psychophysiology is that that is debated. Like, is he the, the, the godfather of coining? that term or not. But what we know is that we found in cardiology, uh, and this was back in the 30s or so, when we really started to see this variance that occurred, cardiologists were noticing that people who either were about to have a heart attack, were in, were having a heart attack, or who had already had a heart attack, had this weird pattern that other people just didn't seem to have when it came to their heartbeat. It wasn't ever initially thought from a cardiology perspective that the heart should operate like a metronome. We always knew that there was something that was uh, causing kind of our autonomic nervous system to control, or I should say even uh, to mediate uh, the functionality of our cardiovascular system uh, through pacing of the heart in different mechanisms. We knew that there was this process called respiratory sinus arrhythmia, which caused an increase of heart rate upon inspiration or inhale. And upon expiration or exhale, we saw a decreasing in heart rate. Now, initially, cardiologists didn't know what to make of that. But what they found was that these individuals, again, who either were about to have a heart attack or having one or who had previously had one, they did not have nearly as much of that fluctuation. Even when you started to pace their breathing and to slow their breathing down, we didn't see that fluctuation like we would with a quote unquote normal individual. So So they started to say, sorry, Jay, to cut across you. So the key seems to be during the exhalation, we should expect a slowing down of the heartbeat that the time between each heartbeat is going to be longer. So it's not really about the inhalation. The inhalation typically mm-hmm. is faster. It's the exhalation that we need to be looking at. And right. if, if an individual doesn't, so say, for example, you locate your pulse and you're focusing on your breathing and you're bringing your attention inwards and you're noticing that there's not all of that much of a variance from the inhalation to the exhalation. What mm-hmm. can one do to improve it? Or what does it say about that individual at that time? It's, it's a great question. A lot of people who maybe do not have a high level of interoception, which is basically your ability to turn inward and connect with your bodily response, might have a hard time differentiating the small pattern changes in time just by simply you know, holding their fingers to their carotid artery 
uh, or finding kind of their pulse on their wrist or in their leg. Um, however, someone who's been well-trained to kind of identify those subtle differences, and you can train someone very easily. I mean, it is very simple to kind of help people to follow kind of that just pattern of pacing. Obviously, it's not as specific as measuring something like heart rate variability, but you can train people how to do it in the moment. And one of the greatest tools and techniques that I use outside of any technology whatsoever is simply saying, let's first find the carotid artery or the carotid sinus that's located in the neck. Um, it is a, a direct link to the pacemaker of your heart, which is the aortic arch of the heart. Go ahead and place your finger there. And I want you just to simply feel within your fingers, your pulse rate as you inhale. And then I want you to tell me what happens as we extend your exhalation and what you're going to get nine out of 10 times or 10 out of 10 times is people say, oh, I felt it speed up. And then I felt it slow down. If they're already in a quote unquote relaxed state when they do that, the feeling or the speed of that fluctuation is going to be much more pronounced. If someone's already experiencing a heightened stress response, then what we'll find is that that they'll still be able to identify the changes, but it won't be as pronounced. So the whole goal would be to condition them through breathing, how to regulate that response, both in a relaxed state, which is more of like a controlled condition, and then how to do it also when they are feeling stressed. And you and I talk about this all the time, right, Patrick, is that like a lot of people, they want to train kind of in the moment when they're experiencing the stressor in and of itself. That's better than doing nothing. But however, would you go and train to run a marathon? at the marathon itself? Or would you do the work prior to going to the marathon in a controlled condition? And I think that most people are going to admit, yeah, it's probably not a good idea to train while I'm doing the marathon itself. Like I'm probably not going to do very well, but if I train a lot before it in a more controlled condition, well, then hopefully the results will translate to me running the marathon. I'm not quite sure if that answered your question, Patrick. So mm. let me know if I yeah, can. No, I think it does because I think it's something hands-on that we that everybody can test because some people may not have the technology, but right. they can get an insight into it. So it's what to expect. Now you're familiar with what we, we do and you, you, you've done the training, for example, um, we use the bolt score, which is an indirect measurement of the chemo sensitivity of the body to the accumulation of carbon dioxide. And when we look at Bernardi's work and probably that of others as well, Trembex in 2017, that there's an inverse relationship between the chemosensitivity of the body to carbon dioxide and the sensitivity of the baroreflex. So could we deduce from this, or is it too much of a push to say that your bolt score, if it's high, you're more likely to have improved vagal tone versus an individual with a very low bolt score, or is that just pushing it too far? No, it's not. Uh, one of the great things about it um, is that currently what we're doing on a research side with my company, Hanu, since we have Bolt built into our application, I mean, you can take your Bolt score as presented just by you and your protocol within our application. And then over time, we can actually look at the different metrics that respond to nervous system functioning and fluctuation and mediation through our application. And we can say, is it true that as people increased CO2 tolerance and chemosensitivity to CO2. As they do that, do we see a direct shift in state change and autonomic nervous system change, but also subjective change because it's something that we're pulling from our data as well. So I want to speak to the research that comes before what we're doing here, but also what we're doing at Hanu. 
What we're finding at Hanu is indeed, as people are enhancing their overall chemosensitivity to CO2, or in other words, CO2 tolerance, as everybody in this room is well aware of, we are seeing that having a direct result as in an increase in overall vagal tone, which is representative by a multitude of biometrics that we are capturing, <clears throat> excuse me, but one in particular, which is a time domain indice of heart rate variability referred to as RMSSD or the root mean squared of successive differences, which is, an, which is a mathematical equation that we use to transform a large amount of data into a linear, it's actually more of a nonlinear understanding of the changes that are happening in the nervous system. In other words, what we're seeing is, is that as Bolt score goes up, this is just put very simply, as Bolt score goes up, heart rate variability goes up as well. Now, one thing that we've talked about before, Patrick, and, and this is always good for people to understand and realize, is that there are a lot of practices that can help enhance baroreflex functioning that can actually increase parameters of heart rate variability that are actually indeed quite stressful on the body. And I won't say quite, I will say semi-stressful on the body, such as doing exercises that might result in a level of CO2 pooling. And what we see is that while they may initially experience a stressor to the body as represented as a small deduction or a reduction in heart rate variability, we see that the after effects or the rebound effects are not that people return to baseline heart rate variability, but that they go above baseline. The body is starting to adjust to that pooling. We're enhancing vagal tone that's not occurring in the moment. So a lot of times people will do these exercises and they'll say, why did my heart rate variability drop when I did, you know, breathe light to breathe right? And my explanation to them is, is that during that exercise, we can see kind of the state change that's happening in the nervous system, which is indicative more in the moment of something that actually looks like we're pulling our foot off the brake lever, the parasympathetic lever. However, after you're done and the body relaxes, we see this huge stimulation of the baroreflex mechanism as well as vagal response that increases heart rate variability. So I see this in um, many practices that actually induce more of a quote unquote stress response In exercise in sauna and cold ba bathing or a cold plunge. A lot of these things can actually induce what initially looks as a, like a stress response. And if people are monitoring it, they get a little bit nervous because they're like, I thought I was doing this to relax. But then when you look at the after effects, it tells a different story. So it's almost like kind of like we can use some of these small stressors in the moment that are really intended to help us in the end. They look like stressors because they are stressors and, and to an extent. And then afterwards we see a different effect. But one last thing, and then I'll be quiet, is that as the more and more pe that people practice this, Patrick, the more and more we see that that practice in and of itself becomes less of a stressor on the body. We actually see that for many individuals, them engaging in light, slow, deep breaths, while initially because they weren't comfortable with it, they hadn't practiced with it at first, the body responded in one way during the, during the practice. And then afterwards you see that rebound effect to where now it's, they initially practice it and they immediately see that rise in HRV because the body knows what's happening. It's, it knows what's coming. It says you're doing this for a reason. Maybe initially it thinks you're doing it because you're drowning, like you're about to die, like there's not a lot of oxygen available and ready. So we need to kind of like kick into high gear to save you. Whereas the more and more you practice it, the brain becomes conditioned neurologically to say, I know what this practice is for. And so I, I, I don't need to kind of fear that there's a threat in front of me. I'm okay. Mm. And then we'll see that rise in heart rate variability. 
It's very interesting. So say, for example, if somebody here isn't familiar with baroreflex sensitivity, would you mind just explaining it very kind of simply? And also, is it known that when we do a breathing exercise, even if it's a stressor, how is it helping to strengthen the baroreflex? And how is a stronger baroreflex improving HRV? Yep. There's three questions there. Sure. Yeah. So the baroreflex put very simply is your body's natural mechanism for maintaining homeostasis of blood pressure. So in other words, your body is going to try to maintain homeostasis to every possible extent that it can at all times. The problem with this though, is that homeostasis uh, that you may initially have can change over time and can look not so great. So for instance, let's just talk about blood pressure. So a lot of people naturally born do not have high blood pressure, but over time, it could be lifestyle, it can be stress, it can be, you know, you name it, can cause blood pressure to rise and the thermostat will change. Um, so what may, it may used to be 110 over 60 is now your thermostat kind of homeostasis point is 140 over 90. Not a good thing, but your body's always going to try to drive you back to that place. So what the barrel reflex mechanism really tries to do is it tries to save your body from going far too much in one direction as opposed to the other direction. It's a negative feedback loop. So here's the loop and I'll make it very simple so that people can understand. There's two primary neurotransmitters that are mediating this loop. The first one being acetylcholine and the second one being norepinephrine or adrenaline. What happens is, is when we uh, start to, when your body starts to sense a rise in blood pressure, and this is done at the aortic arch and the carotid sinus, there's these special receptors called barrel receptors and they're stretch receptors. And when they notice that your blood pressure is starting to really rise and expand that area, it immediately kicks into high gear to help drive heart rate down. So acetylcholine is released, vagal stimulation occurs, and therefore heart rate, very, uh, heart rate variability is going to go up and heart rate is going to go down. This is one of the, and it's about a five second loop. So basically what happens is, is that around five seconds after the experience of uh, increased blood pressure, you'll see a dip in heart rate afterwards. How does this relate to breathing? And the same thing I should start before I relate it to breathing, the same thing should be said in the opposite direction. If your heart rate or if your uh, baroreceptor sense that blood pressure is low, it will indeed release norepinephrine and will actually cause more of a stimulating response to increase blood pressure and raise heart rate. All of its intention is to help with stabilization of blood pressure and stabilization of your cardiovascular system. That's what the baroreflex mechanism is for. So this is one of the interesting things, Patrick, because one thing that I, uh, I like to mention is that while it is indeed true that if we're thinking about relaxation, we really want to focus on an extended exhalation, the increase of your heart rate upon inspiration is actually very important. I won't say necessarily that it's equally important, but it is one of the things that can help stimulate that baroreflex response. Now, does that mean, and I always like to give the example that you should do a strong gasping inhale. No, absolutely not, because you can overstimulate that response and you will have what we call a vagosyncope response, which people will get very lightheaded and you'll pass out. So if anybody has done uh, you know, cyclical hyperventilation, which uses that type of almost like forceful inhalation, 
it can indeed stimulate a baroreflex response. But for the everyday individual who's not accustomed to practicing that, we just see people pass out a lot and it's not a safe thing to do. Um, there are a lot of cautionary things to watch out for. Not saying that it's it, it, that uh, cyclical hypo, hyperventilation in and of itself is a, is a bad practice people should avoid, but it should also be approached with caution. Whether as opposed to the other breathing techniques that we talk about that are really more parasympathetically driven are ones that typically work for most people. And you, there's not a lot of contraindications to them. So when we increase that inhale, what you're going to see again is through that process of respiratory sinus arrhythmia, heart rate is increasing significantly. So the space between heartbeats are actually going to shorten. Heart rate variability is going to decrease upon the in inhalation. However, as you exhale, those time frames start to increase in terms of how much space between heartbeats uh, there are. And so it's the whole cycle that really matters when we talk about variability, because variability is how much do they vary from one another within a time frame. So when we think about that inhalation to exhalation time frame, if they're varying very smallly from or very, very small from one another, then we see a lot less heart rate variability. But if it's a lot of change across the respiratory cycle because of the extended inhalation exhalation range, well, that actually is quite promoting a, 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 a baroreflex sensitivity that increases kind of our resiliency to stress in the moment. So I know that was a bit of a long-winded kind of answer. And you may have asked other questions that I didn't respond mm. to in there. So and let me know. No, I think this is wonderful. Um, you spoke mainly about, so when we take this full big inhalation, that's the stressor response. So it's driving up the speed of the heart rate. And we know that when we have a really slow and relaxed exhalation, it's a relax, it's a relaxer. What, what happens though when we have a fast, sharp, hard exhalation? Can we consider that, is that a stressor or is it just that it's not relaxing enough? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it, the research is very clear that as you extend exhalation, to an extent, because this is this is something that I think a lot of people may get a little bit confused. Um, they say, oh, I could just kind of continue to extend, extend, extend the exhalation until I can't possibly like breathe out any longer. And that actually can be quite stressful on their body. There's great research that, you know, we've done um, at Hanu, but we also, we see kind of in the literature, the biofeedback literature, mostly done out of the University of Rutgers or Rutgers University um, uh, with one of our advisors, Dr. Paul Lair. He's found that people have a resonant rate that typically amplifies heart rate variability the most. Um, and what this resonant rate is referring to is a resonant rate of the cardiovascular system with the autonomic nervous system. So basically, uh, how do they relate to one another in as much harmony or resonation as they can by stimulating the baroreflex response, by increasing heart rate variability, and then increasing respiratory sinus arrhythmia. So that one end is not great, but the other end, uh, and that would be just kind of exhaling until you can't do it anymore. The other end is also equally as potentially detrimental. Um, that sounded a little bit uh, convoluted. Yeah, no, just, it's, yeah. it, it's detrimental. And the reason being is because it does not allow your system to reset. Remember, there's a five second lapse between your baroreceptors but finding out that there is a need to drive one direction or another. Remember, acetylcholine down, heart rate, acetylcholine, I'm sorry, norepinephrine up, increase heart rate. There's a five second lapse. 
which means if anybody's following the literature, which I know probably everybody is in here, that a five second exhalation is about where a lot of people kind of find really good kind of solid relaxation. A lot of people, it could be six second exhalation, seven second exhalation. It might just depend on where that person's resonant rate. And I'm not the one who necessarily preaches that everybody should be, you should find your resonance frequency rate and you should only breathe at that rate. But what's very interesting is that the reason that that rate is kind of within that range is because we know because of the speed of the baroreflex mechanism, if we want to incite sensitivity to it and our ability to connect with it, there's that five second time lapse that we really need to ensure that we're having upon our exhalation in order for our homeostatic mechanism to really catch up. And this then in simple terms. So if we have a client coming in the door and we say to that client, I would like you to breathe somewhere between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute. And a good average would be six breaths per minute. So you're saying that this could be five seconds in and five seconds out or four seconds in and six seconds out. Because a very common question that does come in, and thanks for the answer on that is, what happens if I slow down my breathing to two breaths per minute or one breath per minute? So pretty much what you're saying is that you get all that you need to get within the 4.5 to the 6.5 breaths per minute. There's no advantages, or is there, by slowing down beyond that? Um, that's just a question just to clarify that before. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would say, you know, anything below eight breaths per minute within the literature has been demonstrated to significantly influence the baroreflex mechanism, increased respiratory sinus arrhythmia, and that's all the way down to two or one breaths per minute has been found. However, there are certain individuals, especially if they're tracking it with data, that will see that when they continue to ex, uh, extend their exhalation further and further and further to where they, you know, maybe they started at five breaths per minute and now they're at two or one breaths per minute, that they'll just say, you know, I thought like more is better, but I don't feel better. And my data, like my HRV is starting to plummet when I do that. And I would say, okay, that's time to take a step back. But I've met people and I've I met some serious meditators. Um, so people who have meditated for years and years and years. And when they meditate, like they're getting their breathing rate down to two breaths per minute, three breaths per minute. And they're not doing it uh, conscientiously. It's just, that's organically what is happening. And we see again, that their metrics fly off the roof. But again, that's a lot of practice. It's a lot of time. Um, it's a lot of connectivity to their body and a high level of interoception. So I wouldn't say that, you know, it's detrimental, it could be. But what I will say is, is that the research vastly indicates that there's no significant benefit from dropping below four and a half breaths per minute. Um, there could be, but for the majority of people that have, have been in these research studies, we don't see enough of a benefit to say, yeah, keep practicing it that way. Okay. I'd probably just ask a couple more questions because I think there's so many people wanting to get in, Jay. And listen, I, I think this is great. Um, when we do breathe light, so I've got two questions. When we do breathe light and there's an accumulation of carbon dioxide, is the mechanism by which the increase of carbon dioxide known to stimulate the vagus nerve or known to, to increase the sensitivity of the bioreflex, is that known? Because Normally, if you look at Lehrer's research, he never spoke about carbon dioxide, or at least I'm, I haven't came across a whole lot about hypoventilation or reducing breathing volume to stimulate the vagus nerve. He's always talked about the cadence of breathing, resonance frequency breathing, for example. Is it known that it, the link between carbon dioxide 
and how it is helping to stimulate the vagus nerve or improve the, the sensitivity of the bioreflex. Yeah, this is a wonderful question and something I think should be certainly, certainly be clarified because if you look at the extensive amount of biofeedback literature, and if people are not familiar with biofeedback, it's essentially uh, utilizing breathwork pacing type practices, uh, but having data that you're watching in real time that is indicative of changes within your physiology. So it helps people to kind of understand what is working effectively for them and how it's changing kind of within their body. And the reason that can be so important is that you might have a lot of clients that people in this room that when they do a breathwork session or they do a meditation, meditative session or they do any other session, they might at the end of it say, wow, that was really good. I think I'm feeling a lot less stressed. And that's great. We call that, you know, a, an a subjective appreciation or, a, a, of what you're doing. However, if you add, and this is where the biofeedback literature is amazing, if you add the biological component where people can actually see the objective change in their physiology, for so many individuals, it resonates and they say, oh, it's not me just you know playing psychological mind games that this breathing stuff works or this meditative stuff works. I'm actually seeing physiological kind of hard science change, if you will. I don't like that word, but I'll use it mm. hard science change. And that brings people back in because they're like, yeah, I see it. Like it's clear as day. It's on paper. I have the data. I can play scientist here. The reason I say this is because the one big flaw that we see in so much biofeedback literature is that they pay attention to the data. It's not a flaw necessarily. It's just, that's what they do. And, and when I say they, me, I mean, I'm a board certified psychophysiologist. I'm a psychologist in this area who has basically all the certifications you can in this area. So I, I've been doing this for many, many years. So I was right a part of that crew. But the main thing we focused on was resonance frequency, which is a focus on cadence. It is a focus on pacing. Now, there are discussions that many biofeedback practitioners have with their clientele regarding mechanics and diaphragmatic breathing. That's a huge term that's used in biofeedback is diaphragmatic breathing. Um, however, people like it or dislike it. That's the word that's used in the literature. But one thing that is not talked about, which comes back to your question, is, is the biochemistry of breathing. It's light breathing. It's allowing for CO2 pooling. The, one of the main reasons I talked to Paul Lair about this, and then I'm going to give more of kind of my view on, on vagal stimulation via CO2 uh, and the research that is out there. The one thing that has been really interesting for, for him um, is he said that he has been fearful of more of a light breathing that allows for CO2 pooling with his clientele because he was afraid, especially kind of within the research domain and clinical domain of uh, exciting people's anxiety or basically mm. having people kind of go, go into an anxiety panic attack. So he was like, the thing for me would be just to focus on mechanics of breathing, but really cadence more than anything. Uh, and, you know, when, when you're a hammer, everything you see is a nail, right? So his research really kind of was that lens, uh, the pacing of breathing, resonance, breathing protocols for resonance, biofeedback, and so forth. However, there have been scientists who have done studies and they have looked at changes in physiology that occurs and vagal stimulation that occurs when we induce CO2 pooling. And the main metrics that we're using here um, are looking at a couple of things. Number one is multiple metrics of heart rate variability. That's our single greatest non-invasive proxy for the state change that's occurring in your nervous system. The second would be looking at changes in cortisol and then changes in different neurotransmitters that we know are related to our HPA axis, mainly epinephrine, norepinephrine. 
when we've seen these studies happen, what we notice is that for a bulk majority of individuals, very much similar to what I mentioned earlier, these individuals will initially practice and we see a bit of an opposite response, which is more of like a stress response when they first practice it. Well, why is that? Well, it's very novel to people, right? They have become accustomed to thoracic chest breathing where they're taking in as much volume of air as they can, spitting it out. And if they're stressed, like they, you know, they're breathing really rapidly and really heavily. And so for them to change uh, into where they feel like, oh man, I'm gasping for air, it can cause some initial anxiety. But what we see though, is that the more and more they practice it, the more and more we see a, 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 a high correlation between CO2 pooling and someone's, let's say, very similar CO2 tolerance or Bolt score with the stimulation of other vagal biometrics, heart rate variability, and more specifically, the different frequency domains of heart rate variability, more specifically, yeah. high frequency domain. So the answer that was very long-winded, but the answer to that is yes, but it can take time, which is why I always yeah. warn people with a caveat that if you're tracking data um, initially with these types of practices, like breathe, like, breathe, like, breathe, right? The problem that can occur is that people think, oh, this is bad for me because initially it looks like it's causing me stress. I always come back to, what do you think happens when you go and you exercise? What do you think you happens when you go and you sit in a sauna or you do a cold plunge or you, you, know, you fill in the blank? A lot of these do initiate stress. But then when you look on the tail end and you look on the back end of what that does for reparation of your nervous system, well, that paints a whole different picture. And that's because what you've done is helping one-to-one -one with vagal stimulation. And the more you practice it, the more the body is becoming accustomed to that CO2 pooling it sees it as less of a foreigner and actually much more as a friend. And that initiates vagal stimulation as represented by increased heart rate variability during the practice. It's very interesting. I can understand it from Lair's point of view, because I'm assuming that he would have been working with people who had trauma, people with panic disorder, and they can have a heightened sensitivity to carbon dioxide. So when he's, he begun the practice with them, that it would actually put them into a panic attack. And that's where it's so important to go very, very gently. My last question for the moment before we, we turn on the chat um, or we look at the chat as now go through the questions with you is um, at what point does a stressor become too much? So say, for example, we're talking about breathe light, but we also do breath holding. Um, and you know, the, you, you know the protocol, breathe in, breathe out, hold the nose and walk or jog while holding the breath. It's quite a stressor. What is that going to do again? Is it similar to the breathe light or is it, is it not going to have any impact? Yeah, th this is another really good question. The one thing that you have to understand, everybody here is when you do these practices that stimulate more of a sympathetic response and maybe even more so a parasympathetic withdrawal, um, a sympathetic response is really going to be initiated more strongly when you are experiencing something really rapidly acute. Most people don't have significant sympathetic responses throughout their day. They have more parasympathetic withdrawal that feels like kind of a, a, a stressor. But if somebody cuts you off in traffic and you throw on the brakes and you kind of hold real tight, a lot of times that's the sympathetic nervous system kicking into high gear. It's saying, speed up the brain, you know, uh, speed up the heart rate and get oxygen to the brain. Like let's save ourselves. Uh, and the reason I, I say that is because 
all throughout your day, you're going to experience stressors that are going to manifest in changes in your physiology and changes in your biometrics. It is not that you do experience them because let's just go ahead and paint that as inevitable. Those are stressors, but it's how well are you recovering and how much control, how much volition do you have over your recovery? So for instance, when you're engaging in any type of exercise, it can be, uh, and I'm not talking about physical exercise, I'm talking about a breath work exercise. Uh, you, you, you kind of fill in the blank, but we use, you know, your breath holding and walking exercise. You might see that initially, yeah, heart rate's going to go up. Heart rate variability is going to go down. Um, that is indicative that your body is experiencing taxation on the nervous system. Not a bad thing. So I'll paint that there. Not a bad thing. But does your body recover quickly and get back to quote unquote normal baseline or does it stay there? Here's the, for instance, Patrick, with individuals I've worked with and we've done research studies with that have PTSD, mm -hmm. we have found that these individuals, while their baseline is a little bit lower than kind of the quote unquote normal individuals, their heart rate variability doesn't look that different. Their heart rate actually doesn't look that different until there's a trigger in front of them. And if there's a trigger in front of them, then all hell breaks loose. And when we talk about a heart rate variability and heart rate that a heart rate variability that drops, we're not talking about drop and then comes back up to baseline after they settle. We're talking about drop and it stays down because for them, if the threat has happened, if they're like, it's there, they're triggered, then it's going to take a while for them to recover unless they've developed that level of good, high quality self-regulation. If you're noticing that you're doing a practice and you're wearing, let's say a monitor, we'll throw in Hanu. If you're wearing a monitor and you do a practice and you see, uh-oh, heart rate variability has dropped below baseline. Okay, I won't say uh-oh, I'll say that's what happens. Mm -hmm. But now it's not recovering. Like it's staying there for 30 minutes, an hour. Your nervous system has said something happened to it and I'm not so sure I like it. The great thing about that is you can train resiliency. Even if you see that to happen the first few times, it's not inherently bad. Um, it can be if it continues, but the whole goal would be to continue to train. But if you find, man, I've really put in my due diligence and my effort in training this response and my body's just not responding to it well. And subjectively, I also don't feel very well when I do it. Well, that's when I would say kind of take it, maybe take a step back. Maybe let's try something different or a different type of practice. So again, just to kind of recap there. After doing those kind of stressful breathwork-based practices, it's normal to see a dip. But what it's not normal to see, especially the more and more you practice it, is a dip that stays there. Because a dip that stays there means that your nervous system is continuing to be taxed. You're continuing to secrete cortisol. You're continuing to secrete epinephrine, norepinephrine. So if you're wearing a monitor that's tracking heart rate variability in real time, like with Hanu, I always tell people it is synonymous. If you see heart rate variability drop and you see it stay down, know that that drop required your body to secrete cortisol. It required your body to secrete norepinephrine and epinephrine. And if it is not rebounding, then it is continuing to secrete those things that is happening. Now we need all of those things to mobilize energy, but if we're sitting here kind of just doing our work going throughout our day, that's not a normal response that our body should have. You know, if we're running and exercising, if we're doing things that are inherently stressful, well, that is a normal response. So it's a, it, one mm. of the key components here is context is key. So say for example, somebody does a breath hold exercise and that, that happens or HRV drops and it takes a long time to recover. 
we would change gear then is what you're saying and don't do such a long breath hold maybe do walking with the mouth closed maybe do relaxation massage slow breathing light breathing so because the autonomic nervous system is taxed and we could think of people like chronic fatigue syndrome you're talking about ptsd people with long covid and people with other autoimmune um, issues going on it's really about going very very gently um, and over a period of time, you could be talking about three to six months to help to build up resilience. Or what would be the expectation with this group? You know, it, it really just depends. Um, it's okay. very highly individualized. And I would say this is kind of one of the major benefits of tracking with data is we can see like if you see that you are doing a practice and someone really commits to it for two weeks, but baseline heart rate variability is just dropping, dropping, dropping. Uh oh. That mm. person's nervous system is being taxed and it's not having time to recover. So the more and more you put on it like that, the more and more we're not going to see recovery happen. And we know recovery is key. So it really just depends. And this is why, you know, I, I'm, I, I always tell people I'm a huge proponent of data, but I'm also not a proponent of data. I'm pro a proponent of data for the reasons I just said, but I'm not a proponent data of, of data if it turns into people using it as a self-fulfilling prophecy without doing any other check-in. If that's the case, it's garbage. Throw away the device that I sell, throw away everything uh, kind of in, on your wrist. Mm. I want people to be able to um, utilize that data in order to inform. So it's going to be different in terms of the timeline for everyone. What do you mean by that? So what you're, is it that you're, you put so much stress on yourself to try and get your metrics up that the additional stress you put on yourself is actually having the opposite effect, is it? Oh, 100%. So we know that for a lot of hard chargers, especially, or people just who are generally anxious um, or have a past history of trauma, we're very highly competitive with ourselves. And if we see that our numbers aren't moving in the quote unquote direction that we want it to, uh, to move, that it can become very frustrating. And the more and more we will then act and try to make those numbers change. And a, a thing that I talk about all the time is that these practices should be done with passive volition. That's a coined term that uh, Paul Lair uses, Dr. Paul Lair. What passive volition means is that it, data can be a really great guide because it tells us in real time what's going on with our physiology. But the more and more you try and try to make it change, the more and more it's going to have the opposite effect. So if you see heart rate variability going down during a practice and you try harder to make it go up, what do you think happens? It goes down and down. It's like telling somebody, I want you tonight, an insomniac. Think about this. You have someone with insomnia tonight. I want you to try really hard to sleep. I want you to do mm -hmm. it. Sleep, try, try, try. You think that's going to work? No, absolutely yeah. not. Right. They're going to have a horrible night and they're going to be like, but the doc told me to try. So <laughs> it's really taking a passive volition approach. And if the data is working against you um, because of performance anxiety or because you're trying to make it change, then I would say, uh, throw it aside. Don't throw it away, throw it aside and come back to it. Really. The goal here is learning. How can you self-regulate the data is to help with self-awareness and it's to instill good conditioning and behavioral habits. But what's most important is truly learning how to take control and use your nervous system to your advantage at any time, at any place under any condition. Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm going to go to some questions. Um, so Many happy returns to Sandy. Thanks very much, Album. So Kathleen Wade, would you say the baroreflex is modulated equally by the sympathetic and the parasympathetic systems? 
50-50. Yep. That's 50, correct. 50 Yep. Okay. Yep. Uh, depending on the person. Um, so uh, the whole role is that if these baroreceptors sense that the blood pressure is heightened, indicating that you are uh, activating more of a sympathetic response, its goal is to then help regulate by stimulating your vagus nerve. So your 10th cranial nerve is stimulated via the neurotransmitter acetylcholine, which helps to reduce heart rate and reduces the firing of the neurons within that fiber. Um, and then the opposite happens again, if it sees blood pressure too low. And a lot of people don't think about that, but that can happen quite often. Most people who have anxiety, even if they have high blood pressure can have these really low drops because of malfunctioning of the baroreflex mechanism that can cause people to feel fainty, to feel lightheaded, to feel like they're really off. And you would say, well, I thought you had high blood pressure and it's actually high blood pressure. That's actually driving a lot of the vasovagal syncope that people can have. Uh, when uh, they're experiencing that lightheaded or that withdrawal. Okay, thanks, Jay. Uh, from Alexia, can you name the research literature? Is there anywhere they can go? Do you have something on your website in terms of references? We have, so like on Hanu Health's website, we have a ton of articles that we've written um, that has so, I mean, every single uh, article that we've written is packed with literature. Um, if you're, so one, if you are, a lot of the literature that I've been talking about today is actually coming from Dr. Paul Lair out of Rutgers University. So if you look at his literature uh, or his research published studies uh, in the applied psychophysiology and biofeedback literature, uh, just look up Dr. Paul Lair's name and you're going to see over a hundred publications in this area area. Uh, we don't have them listed on our website. We have him as, you know, one of our advisors, uh, but he is like, that's like the go-to because mm -hmm. what I love about him is it's the seminal research in this area on, on utilizing heart rate variability as a biofeedback mechanism, but also um, he is an individual that over time, because of the findings in the research has been willing to change his viewpoint, which if anybody knows academia, academics, once you kind of like find yourself in one domain and you've made a claim and a statement and you have research to back it up, uh, you really only kind of engage in confirmation bias. And I'm being a little bit facetious uh, because not everybody does that. But what I love about him is he's being willing to say, yeah, the research we done back, we did back in the sixties, we found what we found, but then we found another variable. That's actually something that we never considered that you should consider and actually makes a significant difference. So Paul Lair's research is phenomenal. And that's L-E-H-R-E-R. Yep. L-E-H-R-E-R. You got it. Um, one from Tara Bianca. Jay, I heard you mention vasovagal syncope. So when working with clients who tend to have this response, would you say that HRV and biofeedback training can help them to avoid these fainting spells would improving vagal tone in general have to mitigate their symptoms? Yep. Let's explain what vagal, uh, vasovagal syncope is and how it happens. Basically, uh, for, for the layperson, that's fainting. Uh, that's, that's what fainting is. What fainting is, is when someone experiences kind of a heightened stress response. So let's say someone has an extreme phobia of snakes. They walk out their front door and all of a sudden there's a rattlesnake who coils up. They get big and starts rattling and they pass out, which is probably not the best place to pass out right there at a rattlesnake. What's happening within their physiology? 
complete dysregulation of their baroreflex response. Heart rate goes up crazy fast. I mean, we're talking about maybe their heart rate was at 70 and it just went to 140 in a matter of two seconds, which can easily happen for someone who has this type of phobia. It's more of an extreme example, but it is there. When the baroreflex mechanism senses that, it immediately says, uh-oh, this is not good. Fire the vagus nerve like you've never fired before because if you don't, the heart rate's going to go up to like 400. And because of that, boom, person falls over, they faint, and we're in big trouble. They hit their head, whatever, whatever. It's not good. So the question here is, can we use heart rate variability biofeedback to strengthen that response? And the answer is 100% yes. The studies that have been done on this are really incredible because what we've indicated is that we can just purely from biofeedback, and I won't say, I'm not saying that this is a, a panacea, right? This is not like, oh, it's a cure-all. You can use biofeedback for everything. Please do not mistake me saying that. But what we do have is really high quality literature over the years that demonstrates that as you engage in training the nervous system to respond at will, that training or conditioning becomes reflexive. And when I say reflexive, I'm talking about how it becomes a reflex naturally so that the body says... I'm going to be able to control without me conscientiously having to think about it. So people who have phobias, people who have PTSD, we have seen that while that trigger is still going to cause a stress response, it may not cause as heightened of a stress response that would overly activate the barrel reflex mechanism that results in a fainting or a syncope spell. So we've done it a lot uh, with individuals. Um, again, I'm not saying this is the cure to vasovagal syncope. It may require some level of medication and changes in nutrition. A lot of people who pass out drink way too much caffeine. So there's a lot of other variables there, but it can be extremely effective. Yes. Okay, great. Is there any specific breathing pattern you would recommend while measuring HRV on a daily basis? This is another really good question. It depends on why you're measuring and it depends on how you're measuring. So for instance, there's a lot of great applications out there that just do what we call spot check measuring, or it's basically kind of a, a there's a, a start time and there's an end time. So I'm starting my reading here and I'm ending my reading. Think of things like elite HRV, HRV for training, really good to assess kind of what's the status of the nervous system at that given time. That's more or less re related to recovery. Um, and, and a lot of people are utilizing this more for sports recovery um, and exercise recovery than they are for stress and mental health. There can be application there, but not as much. And, and then we'll kind of also talk about like, those are applications for spot checking. And I'll talk about breathing there. And then there's other trackers, uh, which, you know, again, I'm, I'm not trying to like add a shameless plug for my company, but Hanu is a continuous heart rate variability monitor. So we're looking at it under all conditions all day. So obviously like paying attention to your breathing pace, while good, if you can do it all day, it's probably not something you're conscientiously thinking about, but if you start and end kind of an HRV reading, it's a lot easier to kind of think through how you're pacing. So the answer to that question very simple, uh, simply is you do not have to have a specific breathing pattern. You just want a consistent breathing pattern. Some people just find that they sit back, they relax, and they don't even think about it. Most people still naturally slow their breathing down, but they're not intentionally trying to slow their breathing down. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it is you could just pace your breathing. Um, so there's plenty of apps where you can use, even in Hanu, you can pace your breathing for a snapshot and that's fine. It's just all about consistency. My recommendation is to not pace your breathing, allow it to be natural. I think you're going to get much more 
indication of your full true autonomic nervous system recovery, uh, you're going to inflate different parameters of heart rate variability when you change your breathing. Hopefully that's you know been well established today. Breathing is the number one mediator or catalyst for change of heart rate variability. So it, it's all about consistency, not finding a certain pattern. Do, do you have, Hanu, do you have your device there? Can we see it? Or... Oh, I have, to have li- I have to lift my shirt up. Oh, no. <laughs> Brian's got it on. Oh, Brian has got it on. And I've got it around my chest too. Okay, cool. (laughs) So basically you're wearing it there and it's giving you feedback. It's going to your phone, is it? Yeah, yeah. So it's on my phone, which is is right here. Yep. So it's streaming, it streams data in in real time. And, And so the whole intention behind this is to provide updates on changes in the nervous system at any given moment. And so what we're doing is we're monitoring. We're saying, is the nervous system responding or changing in accordance to what's going on within your internal or external environment? And when it does, are you staying stable? Are you dropping below your baseline all day long? Are you staying below your baseline during certain days that are typically rough? I should, uh, I want to see if I can pull it up right now. Um, we're, we're working on our development app right now. So this is a different version than I normally use. Yesterday was an awful day for me. Like it was just really stressful. And so I was below my baseline, like a bulk majority of the day, simply just because I was stressed, but it gave me kind of the awareness of, yeah, this is on the other application. So I'll have to show it later, <laughs> but mm-hmm. I, I could just see it clear as day. I was like, Oh, that's not a good day. That's the opportunity for me to self-regulate. That's the opportunity to take my time, do my breath work, do my biofeedback, do my meditation. So yeah, that's it. So you're kind of feeling stressed, but then you have the app that's telling you or confirming that you are stressed. So it's kind of that you've got a, a greater incentive then to do something about it when you're seeing it objectively. Yeah. And what, well, the testimonial too, that we're getting from a lot of our users, Patrick, is that a lot of people are finding that these metrics are helping to be preventative. So they're actually showing when things are starting to go on the downward, uh, a steep climb, if you will. And they're saying, Oh goodness, like it's helping me to catch it earlier because it wouldn't be until, you know, I got home and I exploded on the kids or, you know, I yelled at a coworker or I just kind of was feeling that tension and anxiety and anger. Um, and so our hope and goal behind this app and what we're putting a lot of our time and effort into is developing algorithms that can hurt, that can help with the early detection of changes in your nervous system so that we can stop the vicious cycle from unraveling. Because a lot of people, unfortunately, hard charge throughout their day and they don't look, they don't realize they're stressed until it's too late. And they look back and in hindsight, uh uh-oh, like I did some things, said some things, maybe I shouldn't have. I don't feel so good. So if we can stop that vicious cycle before it spirals downward, that is our mission at Hanu, because I truly believe that that is going to help people to really take back their mental well-being is becoming more self-aware of these nasty, nasty cycles of anxiety and stress that lead Mm. to people feeling mentally, uh, just mentally off. And then also learning, like, what can I do about it? How can I self-regulate in this moment? Mm-hmm. Some people aren't very good at bringing their attention inwards. Um, from Alexia, what's the difference of the exhale with the nose and mouth? So if you breathe out through your nose versus out through your mouth, vice versa. 
Yeah, it's, it's another great question. And because a lot of the literature in biofeedback is convoluted with what we call pursed lip breathing. So it's an inhalation and then you exhale through pursed lips. And basically the intention behind it is to slow breathing down. Um, while I think that can be a really good start for some people, I still always recommend that people largely try to go to just a full inhalation, exhalation from the nose. The literature aren't clear that there's any distinctive heart rate variability advantage, but I think there's a lot of translative advantage to just simply breathing from the nose as much as humanly possible, even within these practices. If you're using pursed lips to extend your exhalation, which if you want to see what that looks like, it's just you'll see that in biofeedback literature and biofeedback videos, you're just slowing down the resistance of air exiting, right? Well, your nose does it for you. Um, like you, 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 that, that's why I always just say, go for the nose. If you can, uh, no, no doubt about it. Like not even in question on the inhalation, but on the exhalation, I still think it's a good best practice to go with the nose. Yeah. It's very normal. Um, a question from Pete. I'm not sure if I actually got the question. So an instructor I know who worked with Buteyko for 20 years gave 90 breaths per minute, 90 breaths per minute. Any comment on this? That's extreme hyperventilation. Yeah, 90 breaths per minute. Um, I would well, be nervous. I think what he's meaning is that it's a flicker of air in and out. So these aren't full tidal volumes. These are, it's maybe not 90 breaths per minute, but such a rapid breathing, but almost that you're just exchanging dead space. So it's a stressor. It's still increasing yeah. CO2, but you have the increased CO2 combined with rapid breathing. Yeah, understood. You know, for me, I, I would say that I cannot speak intelligently to how that affects nervous system change. I could only provide my hypothesis on it. But what I can do is I can try it right after this and I'll send out my Honda results and say, this is what happens and then look afterwards. Uh, but yeah, I, I would imagine just kind of my guess is that initially that's that's going to cause, you know, a pretty heightened sympathetic response because that is very abnormal, obviously. Uh, that's not what people, you know, how we evolutionarily breathe. However, it could very well be that that induction of CO2 pooling can mm. then increase a vagal response. It mm. may very well be. Um, uh, interested to try. I've, just, I've never done that. Mm. It's an exercise we, we do commonly enough. Um, Jody, I'm not sure how to answer your question, but the meeting is recorded, so you will get access to it. Uh, from Kathleen Wade, I recently met with Laurent Schmidt, who spoke to me about the, the 4.5 to 6.5 ratio. He recommends two thirds of resting breathing rate from his own research. Hmm. So two thirds yep. of the resting, you would agree with that? So it typically ends up being kind of close to that range. When you look at two thirds, uh, a large bulk majority of people are breathing. 14 to 16 breaths per minute. So that puts that pretty close to that range, maybe on the lower side of that range. I would say that the research that we do have um, that is just standing the test of time is that you have a resonance rate that is going to amplify uh, your Barrow's reflex sensitivity, RSA, and heart rate variability the most. What I always say is, is that there is a difference between what is helpful and what is optimal, right? So in the research of heart rate variability for resonance frequency, we're talking about optimization. But when we talk about what is helpful is reduction of breathing cadence, at least, obviously changing in mechanics and, and, and biochemistry is extremely important, but in terms of cadence, 
the research is very clear. It's it's really below eight breaths per minute and a sweet spot around the five and a half to six breaths per minute. But if you can find that optimal rate, which is something that we offer on Hanu, you can take the full resonance frequency protocol and find where is your optimal resonance rate within the app and then breathe at that rate. So yeah, you know, the two thirds of resting breath rate, it's probably going to be pretty close and it's going to be, I don't know if it's necessarily going to be in that optimal range, like resonance breathing, but it's certainly going to be in that helpful range. It probably makes some sense because if you have an individual breathing respiratory rate of 20 breaths per minute, mm-hmm. instead of trying to bring them from 20 breaths all the way down to six breaths per minute, That's it. just give them two thirds. So they're breathing maybe about 13 breaths. So they get used to that and then bring them a little bit more as they improve. Um, so for Michelle, yes, it works so well with responders using HeartMath's tool. From Angela, how reliable is HRV regarding daily performance respectively? immune system and vagal tone. I realized, sorry, this is a long one. My bolt score is more reliable when it comes to an indication of my daily performance. Some days I don't feel good. My bolt score is low, but HRV is good. And it only goes down one or two days later. So what she's saying is that the bolt score may be low, but her HRV, even though, yeah, she doesn't feel good, her bolt score is low. So her bolt score is telling her she's not feeling good, but her HRV tells her, one or two days later. So I feel there's a delay. So that's from Michelle, or sorry, from Angela. Yes. So there's two things that I want to mention about this. Yes. So what we notice is that uh, depending on the individual, that when we look at HRV from a rec- as a recovery metric for exercise, so basically how well is the autonomic nervous system adjusting to exercise, removing the huge covariate of psychological stress, which is the largest covariate here. The one thing that we realize um, is that for many individuals, it's not the singular day reduction in HRV that is the most concerning. It is the trend that is concerning. A one day of low HRV, and I I know this doesn't exactly relate to Angela's response, but I'll come back to her specifically, but I think it's very important for people to hear. One day of a reduction in HRV is not as much of a cause and concern. Two, three, four days of a downward trend, the nervous system's having a hard time keeping up. It's really taxed and you've got to do something different. Now, in regards to this specific question, that same principle applies. It may not be that one day after, let's say a hardcore workout, you see a huge reduction in heart rate variability. You may actually see a rebound effect. The nervous system may say, that was tough. I need to kick into high gear and perform in order to relax and recover the nervous system. And other metrics maybe uh, that are related but are not the same, let's say bolt score, you may see a different picture. And it could very well be that heart rate variability is not the most reliable thing for recovery at that point in time. But again, keep in mind that when you're looking at heart rate variability from a wide variety of applications, you're looking at a snapshot in time. So you're looking at a start, you're looking at a finish. And when we have a start and when we have a finish, and that's all the time frame that we have, well, that's really giving us just kind of a tiny piece of the picture. But if you're wearing a monitor, let's say all day around, and you're watching what changes, what happens, are you dipping in and out a lot more than normal? Well, even though your baseline may be hovering around the same, but you're having these repeated drops in heart rate variability, these fluctuations, that means that your nervous system is a lot more sensitive to taxation that could have come from the performance that you had the prior day. So I would say that context, again, is key here, but also too, the one thing that Angela points to that I think is very important here is that you have to utilize your experience subjectively 
And then also with other metrics outside of heart rate variability as a good kind of all around holistic view of, of recovery. Great. Thanks, Jay. Um, sorry, one second there. Kathleen was talking about a device that you'd recommend. You're going to be familiar with Hanu Health. How would people get Hanu Health if people are wondering what's your website or how do they purchase it? Can you yeah. give us an idea of cost as well, just so people are a bit um, they're informed? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So HanuHealth.com. So you go to H-A-N-U. If you're wondering what Hanu stands for, Hanu is Hawaiian for breath because that's the core feature of our therapeutic. Um, obviously, we're continuously monitoring people's stress response, but our core therapeutic for self-regulation is always going to be breathing uh, because it's the most single readily available tool that we have. So you go to HanuHealth.com. You can purchase there. It's $299, which gives you the device and access to the software for uh, 12 months. But we also have a, a coupon code for everybody in Oxygen Advantage that will get you 20% off. So you just use coupon code OA. So OA, and that will give you 20% off. Um, and so the whole intention behind this, and, and, I, and I, uh, I like to always kind of mention too, you know, our company is, you know, only 12 months old. So we're a brand new company. And a lot of what we have right now in our app is very data driven. But the one component that we're really working on is helping to drive more data, sorry, more insight and more direction. So the big thing that you'll see kind of within this year is helping you to create more of a tailored personalized roadmap, both in the way that we know, in the way that we notify you when we see kind of these distinctive changes, but also here's the things that are working for you that we think are going to be more beneficial for you to do. Here are the other aspects of mental well-being that we really want you to focus on. So we think it's going to be a really good all around instead of just, it's not an HRV monitor. Uh, we use HRV. It's a mental health device and platform that we're making, but hanuhealth.com code OA, and that'll get you 20% off um, of, of the platform. Great. Thanks, Jay. Um, Jay, how are you? Do you have a fixed time to stop um, just putting... I have a meeting right now, but it is not imperative that I that I that I be there. They know that I'm okay. doing this, and this is very, very important. So I would say um, I could probably go like maybe another another ten minutes. Okay, you're happy enough with that? We'll go with that because there's quite a few questions. Yeah. And um, from Joe, Jay, how well are your clients sleeping, and you helping them improve their quality of sleep? So maybe the question here is: if you have a client who's mouth breathing, does it impact their HRV? or if they have sleep apnea. So how are you approaching this? Are you tracking their progress? So can you track progress of HRV wearing the strap during sleep? You can. We don't recommend that you do it. We just say wear the strap during your working day. There's a lot of really great devices out there that are very sleep specific. Think Aura, you know, Whoop's really good at sleep tracking as well. We tend to use more of them. Uh, and the reason being is because they're going to give you really good optimized sleep staging and sleep advice. So I think that is uh, that is where I would go. Uh, but what we do see though is individuals um, who have worn it at night, because you can, I mean, you very well can do it if you want to, uh, who tend to be uh, more mouth breathers, um, maybe who they're not using mouth tape, or maybe they have OSA, because we have plenty of individuals who have OSA who use, and that's obstructive sleep apnea, um, that use our device. We find that they tend to have a much more suppressed heart rate variability. And not only that, but especially if they go into fits where there's any type of nasal clogging or any time where they're gasping for air, we have seen, and there's evidence not just at Hanu, but in the literature of heart rate variability going down into the low single digits. We've seen examples of individuals who heart rate variability has, has been like 
like at a steady 15 or 16 milliseconds and then drop down to two or three milliseconds. That's almost like if they were exercising pretty heavily when they're sleeping. And a lot of it comes from nasal blockaging, obstructive sleep apnea. It comes from mouth breathing. There's a lot of great research in that avenue to be done um, that we're working on. And we're also looking at how does the use of biofeedback mechanisms and daily continuous stress tracking, how does that translate to better and higher quality sleep? So we're collecting data right now and doing studies on that. And what we're finding, which is really great, is very much consistent with the literature, is that people report better overall sleep quality and sleep quantity when they're actively engaging, not necessarily even with Hanu, but with more self-regulation techniques. It just happens to be with Hanu for us. But the more you learn to self-regulate, the better you sleep. Excellent. Um, what would you say about H HV swallow mouth breathing techniques to tend to shut down the frontal region vascularization of the brain to reset and reroute the brain and shift patterns and habits? Have you came across uh, that before? I, I, I'm not quite sure actually what that that question means. I'm uh, I'm sorry. I don't, I, I don't think I can speak intelligently to it. Sorry, album. I don't I don't know either. Yeah, um, sure. And um, my question is some breathing techniques tends to hyperventilate but to me to my beliefs it's again the law of nature because you're um, lowering the vascularization of the frontal lobes region and so instead of rebalancing in first move you are just debalancing it max and then trying to rebalance it so is it better to hyperventilate to tend to hormetic response or to do slow uh, LSD uh, breathing first because it's more in a physiological uh, straightforward um, approach. Does it make sense? No, not really. Sorry, oh, and I'm trying to get my yeah, head around sorry. it as well. I'm, I'm, I'm just conscious, album. Just I'm so conscious that we only have Jay for a few minutes. Um, okay, so I'm sorry, would you I'll mind if I pass? Thank you very much. Yeah, sorry. Um, from Kathleen, we might keep the answers short now, Jay, if that's okay. We'll get through more sure. questions. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Rap um, rapid fire is good. Vasovagal, synecope, dorsal horn driven. Is it dorsal horn driven from uh, Kathleen? I'm a, to me, I'm, she's talking about uh, dorsal, like vagally driven, which is more of like a, a polyvagal theory, sympathetically driven type of state. And no, no, it, it's mediated by both branches of the autonomic nervous system. And I should say the third branch actually plays uh, as well, which is your enteric nervous system or your gut. So it's not just sympathetically driven. And um, from Alban again, could you tell us more about cold exposure and TCM internal cold health factor that can affect physiology? Yeah, so cold cold exposure been well documented as a great mechanism for hormetic stress. Given the person, I mean, it's always uh, individual. I'm not saying that cold exposure is uh, helpful for everybody, at least initially. And there may need to be some qualifying and some training, um, especially if they have hypertension or hypotension, something you have to wor worry about with sauna as well. But what we see very clear in the literature, more so on the heat exposure, but we're starting to see this in the cold exposure literature as well, is that the stimulation of uh, your vagal response response post doing those types of, of training mechanisms is pretty significant. Um, and again, it depends on the person, uh, but I see it pretty significantly with our Hanu users and also with myself and in the literature. Yeah. So you're saying dip the toe into the water instead. Um, Lenora, it looks like you're wearing a, an aura ring, Jay. Can you speak to that as well? 
Yeah, I love my aura ring. You know, my aura ring, my whoop band, um, more specifically, my aura is uh, something that I use more more at nighttime. Um, it doesn't provide a ton of inherent value for me during the day, uh, but for sleep staging, uh, for helping me with overall, you know, sleep window, sleep quality, love to use it. Um, you know, I think it's very complimentary what with what we do uh, at at Hanu. Hanu is a mental health driven, you know, data driven mental health operating system platform, whereas Aura is a sleep platform. Um, they you know they have other areas as well, but they're sleep. And I think that the pillar or foundation of high quality mental health is sleep. So I love it. And from Angela, does your application also work with a Garmin chest strap or Garmin watch? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, Our big goal here in 2023 is to be completely 100% brand and device agnostic. We want to build on everything. Now our device will look very different depending on what you're wearing and the quality of data that we can give. Right now, no, we're just on one singular device. However, uh, we are moving to other devices very, very rapidly. Um, and the whole goal here is for you to be able to not have to buy a new device. You can just use what you have because so many people already have, you know, an Apple Watch or Garmin or Fitbit or Polar or whatever it may be. Our goal is to drive not having just to, to sell software in a platform, not have to ship out devices. You just use what you got. Um, from Brian, just add humming to slow the exhale instead of per slips. You can do it. Can the device detect positional changes from Kathleen? Yeah, and I, I assume they mean like movement. Uh, and the, the answer is yes. Uh, we are working right now to build in um, kind of more high high level detection of position and movement uh, because that plays a huge factor into your stress response. Anytime that you're actively moving, you're mobilizing energy. And so therefore uh, heart rate variability is going to drop. Heart rate is going to go up. Um, but uh, that right now has not been a core feature of the app. We're building it in kind of as, as we speak. Okay. I'll just leave it to the last question. And um, are there charts outlining, are, sorry, are there charts outlining target HRV? Do targets change by age or gender? Or is it just about establishing a baseline and improving from there? Yeah, this is a great question because actually it was something that you brought up earlier, Patrick, that I think would be really important for us to visit is because people, um, they see kind of like these charts where they say, oh, here's kind of where the average is. And I fall either well below it, or maybe I'm at it and I want to get higher. And a lot of people concentrate on trying to increase heart rate variability as much as they possibly can. The huge downfall to this is that we are missing the main point of what heart rate variability is telling us. Number one, it's not a vanity metric. Number two, it is not a metric that should be compared um, to anybody else. It's very individualized because the literature is also very clear that the key component that differentiates people's heart rate variability or is the thing that is most responsible for baseline heart rate variability from the get-go is Genetics. Genetics is key. We've seen studies where they found that outside of people's health status, regardless of their health status, that people who share the same genetic makeup, so think siblings, think you know, parent-children relationships, they tend to have more similar heart rate variability than they do dissimilar heart rate variability, even if one's health is great and the other one is awful. What is most important when it comes to heart rate variability is using it for two different things. Number one, using it as a proxy to watch changes throughout the day. We have even debated this. Uh, I don't think we're going to do it because I think we'd have a lot of people not too happy and I probably wouldn't be too happy with it. We've almost had, we've had the discussion of when we show charts of heart rate variability, not showing any numbers. 
just showing you here's where you should be, um, which is your baseline range. You should be within your baseline range. And here's when you're coming out of it, when you're, here's when you're going above it and here's when, where you're in it. And we've debated that idea, but I don't think a lot of people would be happy. They're like, no, no, I want to know the specific number. And the reason being is because a lot of people get hooked on this idea that it's got to be a certain thing. Now, there are indications that there is such a thing as having a low heart rate variability, but low is relative to you. And also low is really only been found in the studies to demonstrate someone who uh, it, it, that you can compare it to when they are at risk for cardiovascular disease because they've already had like some cardiovascular incidents. So that's my long-winded way of saying, but I think it's really important. My long-winded way of saying is that those targets by age and by gender are for like research purposes only. They're essentially useless. What's most useful is kind of knowing just like CGM or blood glucose, how much variance is occurring throughout the day? Uh, and how well can you use heart rate variability as a mechanism to show how well you're self-regulating? Because if you can enhance heart rate variability by 50, 60, 100% in a matter of 30 seconds, I'd rather have that than a heart rate variability that on paper looks really great. You know, a hundred or above, maybe like, oh, that's my target. I'd rather have the person who has a 50 but can raise it to 100 as opposed to someone who has a hundred, but can only raise it to 103, 104. It's amazing. It's being really informative. Um, Jay, I think so many people have got, I didn't even introduce who you are. So I'm glad that you listed your credentials halfway through. I knew you had so much information. So I wanted to get the ball rolling. So for people to look more your website again, it's Hanu Health. Yep. Hanuhealth.com. Follow us on Instagram, you know, follow us on you know, Twitter, other places as well at Hanu Health. Uh, we are going to put a, put out a lot of content, obviously the Hanu Health podcast, you listen to Patrick and I, we have other guests as well. Uh, so we put out a lot of information on autonomic nervous system functioning, stress resiliency, breathing, heart rate variability. And uh, really our goal is just to make it as easily packaged both for you and for your clients that you have uh, so they can learn something and implement, you know, some goals golden nuggets here and there well for everybody thanks very much for joining uh, this recording will be available from the training portal and a special thanks to uh to to jay thank you for listening to the oxygen advantage podcast if you liked what you heard please subscribe and maybe take the time to leave us a review the oxygen advantage podcast is available from all your podcast providers